welcome. It's good to have you guys with us. I want to begin this morning with a question for you to ponder. And here's my question. What are you waiting for? Just a question for you to think about. Just something for you to think about. I don't think anybody likes the idea of waiting. Am I wrong about that? Is there anybody who just loves waiting rooms? Loves just like having to wait for something? We have near our house um, this little place. I don't know if you've heard of this little place. It's called In-N-Out Burger. <laughs> and um, and near our house, we have like one of the old In-N-Out Burgers. It's just like this little building with windows on two sides and you, you know, drive through. It doesn't matter what time of day you go there, it's a half an hour in that line, right? It's always packed, and I always drive up, and I've got visions of double-doubles dancing in my head, <laughs> and then I see the line, and I'm like, oh, seriously? I don't know if I'm even going to be hungry by the time they feed me, but turns out I am. Um, or have you ever, as a parent, maybe had a sick kid, so sick that they needed to go to the emergency room. You get to the emergency room and you see that the place is completely packed and your kid's burning up with fever or your kid's got a broken arm or whatever the case may be and they tell you, hey, look, have a seat. It's going to be a while. We'll, we'll get to you when we can. Um, I might have shared this with some of you, but I, I did learn a great lesson um, when I had my heart issues. I went into the emergency room, and, uh, there, and the place was packed, 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 and I said, yeah, I'm having some tightness in my chest, and they're like, come with us, and we just came right in. So that's my advice. I don't care if you stubbed your toe, if you bit your lip, if you can find any tightness in your chest. That's the way to do it, because we hate waiting rooms. Um, now, I'm not talking, when I say we hate waiting, I'm not talking about like, you know, intentional downtime. I'm not talking about vacations. I'm not talking about sitting on a beach somewhere sipping lemonade or whatever. Um, I'm talking about when you really have plans, and you really have somewhere to be, and you're stuck. One, one year as I was uh, flying home from Africa, I specifically decided to fly Turkish Airlines because Turkish Airlines always connects in Istanbul, and I had never been to Istanbul, and they always have this ridiculously long layover, at least for the price tickets I can afford, and so um, I had like a 36-hour layover in Istanbul, which is like, that's where Paul is from, right? That's, that's Turkey. That's the whole place where you read in your, your book of Acts, and you're like, this is unfolding right here, and I thought, I need to spend a day, and by the way, at least at the time that I was there, life in Turkey was much cheaper than life in the United States, and so I booked a five-star hotel, and it was like a hundred bucks a night. And I thought, this is going to be great. It's not far from the airport. I'm going to take a tour. I have a tour set up for the day. I'm going to go to all these ancient places. I'm going to see all of this stuff that I read about in Scripture. And, and so I'm flying in on Turkish Airways, coming out of Africa into Turkey. And when I land, they come on the plane and they make an announcement. And they say, 
we're sorry to tell you that today there's been an attempted coup here in Turkey. And so none of you will be allowed to leave the airport. So stay in the airport. So literally everybody who flew into Istanbul that day was stuck there for however long and, and you weren't allowed to leave the airport. Even if you lived there, you weren't allowed to leave the airport. We were all just quarantined. Imagine that, quarantine. We were all just quarantined in the Istanbul airport, which I suppose is fine if you're one of these people who has, you know, the black uh, American Express card or something, and you could just get into all the lounges and all that kind of stuff. For, but for me, it was the 36 longest hours of my life. People everywhere, everywhere, nowhere to sit, can't even walk through the place. Everybody's on high alert, guys with machine guns walking through constantly. And I'm like, oh yeah, I actually diverted my trip to come here. <laughs> it, there, there are certain things where when you're waiting, the hours go by much more slowly, right? Um, and so it's one thing to be stuck temporarily like that. At least I could look at the clock and know I was going to get a flight out of there if they didn't storm the airport before that uh, was too late. But, um, but what do you do when you feel like you're stuck permanently? What do you do when you feel like um, you're stuck, say, in a bad marriage, when you're stuck in an abusive relationship, when you're stuck in poverty, and you look around you and you think, man, there, there, I don't know any way to get out of this, or when you're stuck in addiction, or even just stuck in a dead-end job and you're thinking, I'm not qualified for anything else, I'm just going to be here forever and I detest coming to this place every day. Most of us know something about what it's like to be stuck. Or have you felt, I don't know, like you're stuck in a cycle of never-ending viruses? Anybody ever feel that? Um, that's kind of this feeling that I don't have any control over this. I can't fix it. I can't make a change. I'm just stuck. Well, I want to share with you some scripture this morning. And, and the first is one of my favorite passages. Take your Bibles and go to the New Testament book of Matthew. It's your first book of the New Testament. The, the, book of, uh, the New Testament begins with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Go to Matthew chapter 4, very early in your New Testament. And I want to just remind you of a passage that many of you are perhaps familiar with. But I'd like for you to think about it again with me today. And it's going to set the stage for this new series that we're starting today. And it begins in verse 18, and this is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and here's what it says, Matthew 4, 18. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. All right, let's just get a picture of this, right? So here we're meeting for the first time in the Gospels, these four guys, 
Peter and Andrew are brothers, and James and John are brothers. All of them are fishermen. They work in their father's business, which is what pretty much everyone did in those days. And um, they had this life. I, I, I highlighted this in verse 18. It says, for they were fishermen. How are you going to introduce these new friends, Andrew and Peter? Hi, this is my friend Andrew. He's a fisherman. It's who he is. It's what he's known as. It's his life. He lives by the Sea of Galilee. He works in the Sea of Galilee. He gets up in the wee hours in the morning and goes to work. He always smells like fish. He is a fisherman. That's how the scripture describes him. And, and don't get me long, wrong, that's not a bad life. These guys are gainfully employed. They, um, they have a decent, respectable life. Um, they have a future ahead of them of sorts. They're going to inherit their father's business one day. But what they didn't realize was that they had been more born for something much more than this. They would not always be known as fishermen. They were one day going to be known as something else. When you today think of Andrew and Peter, when you think of James and John, do you think of fishermen? No, because something happened in their life because they were born for something more. And God had a plan for them that their lives were going to have meaning beyond just making a living for their family, beyond just being fishermen. So what did Jesus say to them? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, he says. I will make you something more than you are today. That's what's going to happen, Jesus says, while you're following me. If you follow me, I will give you the life you were designed and created to have. Follow me and that's what's going to happen while you follow me. Follow me and I will take you on an adventure that is going to end up changing the world. If you follow me, that's what's going to happen while you're following me. Follow me and I will give you a life of significance, a life of impact, a life of meaning. You are not going to be known for your fishing prowess forever. There's something more for which you were born. This, my friends, is what the Christian life is supposed to be about. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Christianity is far less about where you are or even who you are than it is about where you're going and who you're becoming. It's all about God calling us to walk with Him. It's all about God calling us to follow Him. And as we follow Him, something happens. We actually become someone different in the process. That's what He says. And this story, you guys, is told again and again and again. By the way, if you're not familiar with this book, I suggest you read it. It's got so much stuff in it from cover to cover that illustrates this very point, that God has a plan for your life which is bigger than what you are tempted to settle for. Take Go all the way back to the book of Genesis and think about the life of Abraham. He's just some, some pagan guy that God comes upon in whatever way he does, makes himself known to him and says to him, Abraham, if you will follow me to the place that I will show you in the process, I will make you a great nation. 
And through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. It's going to happen while you follow me. And we're going to talk more about Abraham a different week. But I just want to remind you that Abraham's life is a life full of stumbling and falling and tripping and making mistakes and doing dumb stuff and being the, uh, the poster child for how to be a bad husband and a bad father. And Hebrews 11 says... He's the example we should follow of a life of faith. How can that be? With all those mistakes and all those stumbles and all those issues, how is he an example that we should follow? You know why? Because from beginning to end, God said to him, follow me, and he followed him. And he stumbled and he fell, and when he stumbled and fell, he would get back up, and what would he do? Keep following God. And over the course of a life of following God, what did God do? Made him a great nation. Story continues. You read through Genesis, you come across this guy, Joseph. He's kind of a cocky little arrogant guy. He has a dream and he thinks that he's going to be somebody. He makes his brothers mad. His brothers end up uh, selling him into slavery. He goes from being his father's favorite son to being a slave in Potiphar's house. He goes from Potiphar's house when you think things can't get worse and ends up in a dungeon somewhere. And he goes from that dungeon and God calls him to continue to be faithful to him. And in his faithfulness, God puts him on the throne of Egypt. And Joseph is used as this example of what happens when you will walk with God the whole way and not jump off at the station you just arrived at because you don't like the way the train is going. And God changes the world through Joseph. Or think about the story of Moses that you're so familiar with, right? He's born and, and ends up being adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He's raised in Pharaoh's household to be royalty in Egypt. He's the most rich, the most powerful, the most influential he'll ever be. And by the age of 40, he's running for his life. He ends up for 40 years just hanging out with sheep in the wilderness, Think, man, what a wasted life. What a wasted um, bunch of potential that Moses was. And at the age of 80, and some of you might be closer to 80 than you are to 40, and so listen up, listen up, 80-year-olds. Here's the thing you need to know. Moses' life took off at 80. And from 80 to 120, God used this man to go with God. And as he went with God, God changed the world. God made him who he wanted him to be. Now, guys, we're going to talk about some of these people in greater detail in later weeks. But, but think about, you know, there's Gideon, there's um, David, there's Nehemiah, there's Elijah, there's Elisha, and it goes on and on and on. These people who really their claim to fame is simply this, they walked with God. They followed him where he was leading. This is the norm for God's people. Where God finds you is not where God's gonna leave you. I hate it when you miss your amens. <laughs> where God finds you is not where God's going to leave you. Amen. Yeah, that's encouraging, right? That is outstanding news. And so remember, 
God's words to Israel, the famous passage, Jeremiah 29, 11, that everybody loves to grab out of context and apply it to their own life and claim promises with. Jeremiah 29, 11, he says to the nation of Israel, as he's speaking to them about their captivity, he says this, I know the plans I have for you. In other words, I know it's a rough time right now. I know it's hard to see my activity right now, but I'm not done with you yet. I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And don't get confused, this is not your invitation to take that verse, fill in the blanks with what you want, and make those God's promises to you. That's not what God did. But it does tell us something about God's character here, that God keeps his promises. That just because you're in a place where you can't see a way forward doesn't mean there isn't a way forward. God is always working. That's the nature of the Christian life. And so, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you're going through right now, but I know this. If you'll answer God's call to follow Him, you will not be stuck. You'll be on your way to becoming the person He created you to be, to live in the life He created you to live. And it's not a boring, meaningless, inconsequential life that He's calling you to. How did Jesus describe his mission on earth? Jesus said this, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 10, verse 10. But is that what most of us are experiencing right now? Is that the bumper sticker you want to slap on your car? I'm experiencing life abundantly. Is that your description of 2021? Is that your description of 2020? Think about your own life, you personally. Is that what you're experiencing right now? How about your family? Is your family experiencing what you would call life abundantly right now? Or, the, or maybe, maybe uh, organizations you're part of, maybe you own a business, maybe you're a part of an organization that's doing something. Would you say that it's flourishing? Would you say that it's experiencing life abundantly? Or, or, or think about our local church. Most local churches have spent the better part of two years waiting for things to get better so we could get back to doing the things that God called us to be about as churches. And I'm just here to declare I'm sick of waiting. I'm done saying, okay, we're stuck so nothing can happen. We're not waiting for something to change, some... some um, political situation to change, some financial situation to change, some virus situation to change before we can begin to live abundant life the way God has called us to. Um, but, you know, what's happened instead of, of the calling that God's given to local churches is that most local churches I know have lost significant ground in the last two years. They've lost momentum. They've stopped having the same kind of impact that they were having. Guys, that's not okay. We are on mission with God, and the nature of that mission is sort of like climbing up a steep hill, right? It takes some, some commitment to keep climbing, but here's the problem. When you stop climbing, you start sliding backwards, 
And, and so if we're going to be serious about being on mission with God, if we're going to be serious about Jesus calling to follow me so I can make you who I want you to be, we're going to have to continue following him. Because the truth is life's full of ups and downs. There are times when you're riding the wave and there are times when the wave is breaking on your head. That's life. Sometimes it feels like a cruise ship. Sometimes it feels like the Titanic. So how do we make sure that we're experiencing abundant life that Jesus talked about, uh, even when things aren't going the way we hoped or expected? That's what we're going to be talking about in this new series we're calling Forward Progress. And, and we're going to look at several different examples from Scripture, but we're going to start today with the Apostle Paul. I know you're sitting here going, oh my gosh, we're just starting. Don't worry, hang in there. I'll, we'll give you extra coffee at the end. Most of us would agree, when we think about the Apostle Paul, most of us would agree that he experienced a pretty significant life, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we say that Paul's life is still having an impact today? So, so whatever is meant by abundant life, I would say Paul's a good example of that, that he followed Jesus, that he was used by God in great ways, that he became far more than he was when Jesus called him on that Damascus road, that he lived a life of significance that was world-changing. So what was his secret? It's an outstanding question. I'm glad you thought of it. In Philippians 3, Paul gives us three secrets. He outlines, so take your Bible, go to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at this together briefly. We don't have time for an in-depth study, but we're just going to look together at this briefly, and we're going to look at three secrets that made Paul's life into the life that God intended it to be. And if you're taking notes, I'm just going to give you three points. Here they are. They're simple. The first one is this, don't look back. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. In other words, it's not going to be necessarily an easy trek the whole way. <clears throat> for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And then he gets into this. He says, although, verse 4, although I myself might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. That's how Paul describes himself up to this point. He had quite an impressive resume. He, he was in the right nation. He was in the right family. He was in the right tribe. He had the right training. He had the right education. He had been given all the opportunities. And he was excelling in all the things that he was expected to excel in as a Jewish man, as a Jewish leader. But do you know what I find funny about Paul? Even though he lists all this stuff that says, here's how great I was even before I met Jesus... There are other places where he lists his trials, his failures, his discouragement, his difficulty. Just keep a finger there in Philippians chapter 3 and go just back to the left a few pages to go to the book of 2 
Corinthians. And we're going to pick it up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. Listen to this. This is Paul speaking of himself and his traveling companions. He says, We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Perplexed, pressed down, He goes on and on and on and talks about the difficulties that keep coming. He's like, I don't know if you think it's glamorous to be an apostle, but let me tell you what it's been like for me. He tells you it has been hard. Now, if we skip over to chapter 11, same book, uh, 2 Corinthians um, chapter 11, and pick it up with me in verse 23, here's another one of Paul's great lists. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonment, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. By the way, if you've already been shipwrecked twice, maybe don't take ships anymore. Verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Want to trade lives with Paul? This, my friends, is an abundant life. But it's not a life without pain. It is not a life without difficulty. So he has this impressive resume, and he has this depressing list of things that are weighing him down. So what's the point? The point is, Paul didn't let what stood behind him Get in the way of him making forward progress in his walk following Jesus. My friends, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Your past does not define you. Jesus went to to those four brothers, and the scripture says they were fishermen. But he said, follow me and I will make you what I created you to be. Our past does not define us. Your past accomplishments do not define you. Your past failure does not define you. Your past abuse does not define you. Your past shame does not define you. Your past happiness does not define you. All of those things go into what God uses to shape you, but that is not the definition of you. God has a vision for your life, and it's greater than anything you've experienced up to this point. 
That brings me to lesson number two from Philippians chapter three. Here it is. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. We'll pick it up in verse seven. Well, I gotta get back to Philippians. Philippians chapter three, verse seven. Here's what it says. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, a righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Just like Jesus didn't call you because of your past, Jesus also didn't call you because of how much you have to offer him. No offense, but Jesus knows everything there is to know about you and what you have to offer. And this verse calls it rubbish. God bless you. In fact, if you read in the Greek, it doesn't say rubbish. Rubbish is the cleaned up word. The word in the Greek is poop. God looks at all our stuff and all of our accomplishments and goes, wow, it's a big steaming, smiley, uh, smelly pile of poop. So, so if it's not about your failures and it's not about your skills and your great righteousness, then what's it about? It's about His grace and His power to change lives. So the best thing we can do is get our eyes off our past and get our eyes off ourselves and instead put our eyes on Him. And that brings me to lesson number three from this passage, Philippians chapter three. Keep moving ahead. Keep moving ahead. You want to make forward progress, you do that by continuing to move ahead. Pick it up in verse 12. Not that I've already obtained it, he says, or have already become perfect, but I press on. That's a great phrase for you to circle, underline, highlight, put a star next to in your Bible. I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. There's a purpose for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me, it says, and I want to lay hold of that purpose. Brethren, verse 13, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, I love this, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Far too many people get derailed because of their past. Or they get derailed because of certain weaknesses in their lives that they seem to just not overcome. Or they get derailed because of self-centered pride. Because they think they got it all handled and it's all about them. But Paul lived a world-changing life because he always had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And the incredible calling that God had placed in his life. One thing I do. If you were given that assignment, you had to boil your life down to one thing I do. One thing 
my life is about, what would it be? Paul said his whole life was about following Jesus, answering the call of God in his life. And because of that, not because of his skills, not because of his pedigree, his training, his impressive past, and despite all the trials and the shipwrecks and the beatings and the imprisonments, but simply because of his single-minded devotion to following Jesus, God turned Paul's life into that abundant life that God had always created it to be. So I ask you again, what are you waiting for? God is not hindered by your past. God is not dependent upon your righteousness or your talents. God is, is doing a great thing and he's inviting you to join him in this great journey. You know what that means? It means however it might feel to you right now, you are not stuck. Forward progress is possible for you. So let me ask you one more time. What are you waiting for? Let's pray together. Lord, as we focus our thoughts on your word, we're reminded to focus our hearts and our eyes, our minds, our intentions upon you. And so we come to you now just to take a second, God, just to take a deep breath and maybe exhale and, and refocus. Lord, there's so many distractions. There's so much scar tissue. There's so many memories. There's so much damage that's been done. There's so many questions as we look forward. And so God, help us to take our eyes off of all of that, entrust it to you, and put our eyes upon you. For this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.